If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find the book of Titus, the third chapter, as we put our final installment uh, into our exposition of this pastoral epistle. In this series we're calling, we've titled, that is, Saving Grace, Changing Grace, because when God's grace gets into your life, it changes you, right? And this message is titled, Protecting the People of God. Now, I have to tell you that this is, this is one of those messages that, that as I studied the Scripture and as I spent time and poured, poured my heart and soul over this, I was reminded that I need to remind you, I didn't write this, God did, okay? Because this is a strong passage of Scripture. In fact, so much so, it's dealing with the whole aspect of discipline, correction, and church discipline. And my mind went to a time a number of years ago where we had a very prominent member of our church who had fallen into sin and uh, just the, the loving but consistent uh, process of church discipline was applied to this man who had a family and everything. Uh, and he just continued to rebuff all of the attempts to bring him back to cause him to repent, to turn back to God and to his family and to his church. And, and so it got to a place where we had to, in obedience to Scripture, we had to remove him as a member of Sailorville Church at a special member meeting. And uh, it, was a very, it was really gut-wrenching and, and tearful. There weren't too many dry eyes in the house. Uh, and we removed him. And as I was walking out that evening, a woman who had become a part of our church just a few months earlier, she'd been in other churches that were not so Bible-centric, not gospel-centric, uh, came up to me and she said, thank you, pastor, I feel safe here. And I have to tell you that that statement was so encouraging to my heart. One of the blessings of church membership is belonging. And to the existing membership, when you come in, uh, it's that knowledge that you're on board, uh, that you, you're, you are adopting the vision and the, and the doctrine and the purpose of Sailorville Church to see more people become more like Jesus. And when somebody becomes a member of this church or a church like it, you're saying, I'm all in. I'm ready to come, to serve, to love, and to reach out to others, to bring them into this realm, into this place of truth, love, and yes, safety. Safety? How is membership connected to one's spiritual safety? Well, let me show you, but I have to warn you, it's, it's a scary passage of scripture, scarier than any horror movie you've ever seen, and I'm blood earnest when I say that. Here it is, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul writes, it's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that not isn't even tolerated by the pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. 
For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Have you ever read that? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Those are strong words. And did you see that? Church discipline literally moves an individual from the safety of the realm of the local church into an entirely different realm. Satan's realm. He's invoked here. His actual name is invoked. Who has God's permission to deal with the unrepentant one. Now, I know what some of you probably think when it comes to membership. I mean, can I be on board in spirit and not actually join? Well, sure. Sure you can. But who would know? Who amongst us would know if you're there and you're with us in spirit? How do we know you believe what we believe? How do you know that you hold the same vision and the values of this church? And by the way, By the way, those who never join the church are also saying something. You're saying, I'm not all in. Or you're saying, I don't believe what you believe. Or you're saying, I'm just not really sure. Or you're saying, I kind of like being non-committal. It's easier that way. Or some such thing. And this is really huge when it comes to this passage we're, we're, we're dealing with here today. This is really huge. If you're a member, you're saying, in addition, you're saying, I welcome godly rebuke. I want my brothers and my sisters to tell me when I'm off track. I willingly accept the reality that if I fall into sin and refuse to submit to the authorities, I then subject myself to church discipline. The writer of Hebrews put it like this. He said in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey those who have the rule over you and submit yourselves as they who, wait for it, watch for your souls. Whose souls? Everybody that just comes in? Or, I mean, there's all kinds of directive and indirect references to church membership. There's one right there. I mean, That's why 1 Timothy 5 talks about women who are added to the, quote, list. There is such thing as membership, contrary to what a lot of people think. Matt Chandler asked a really good question when he says, how can you put someone out if there isn't an in? Good question. By the way, no no law, uh, or rather, by law, rather, no church can discipline an individual without documented membership. Just to tell you, I know you're thinking, geez, where does this this church discipline thing come from? Well, the passage I just read earlier and others as well, and to different degrees, and I'll explain that as we go. But first, as we conclude Titus chapter 3, verse 8, here we go. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Remember, that's been his theme. It's been replete throughout this little epistle. These things are excellent and profitable for people. 
Notice the word profitable. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division, that we get our word heretic from that word, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And then, as if to put brackets around this, down to verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so, that, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Okay, there's your text. I had somebody I was meeting with, no, it was a couple of years ago now. They'd come to our church. Family loved it. He struggled, loved the church, kind of wondered, but he was just had such a social emphasis. Uh, and that's, what, that's, that's the emphasis he wanted. And we were kind of talking. He goes, and then he said to me, he said, all the churches around here pretty much believe the same thing. I won't tell you how I responded. But one of the distinguishing features even between churches like ours that do believe the same thing, are essence, in essence, doctrinally, you could, they pretty much line up. But the differences amongst even Bible-believing, gospel-centered churches is whether or not they take church discipline seriously. And when necessary, church discipline becomes kind of a, 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 kind of a divine reset for, for the church. Look at it that way. Whereas God makes himself big all over again. His, the fear of the Lord starts to permeate the ranks. And people are reminded this isn't a social club. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, put it like this. Authentic biblical discipline is not an elective, but a necessary integral part of an authentic church. He's right. Now, if you read through your Bible, and that's what we're doing now, right? Amen? If you're reading through your Bible, then you see God doing uh, spectacular, I'm using that term purposely, spectacular things in judgment at epic periods throughout the Bible. Let me prove it to you. Garden of Eden, man sins, God judges, the world is condemned. That's pretty spectacular, amen? Fast forward, where you're reading in your Bible reading, little spoiler alert, <laughs> Leviticus 10, you're going to read it tomorrow. Here is the tabernacle, it's all set up, everything's been going, God has been uh, working with Aaron and his two sons, sons, Nadab and Abihu, and on day one of this new epic, this new period, the time of the law and the tabernacle, Nadab and Abihu go in and they offer strange fire, the Bible says. And basically God says, you like strange fire? I'll give you fire and smokes them right there. Day one, they're both killed on the job. That's spectacular, wouldn't you say? In fact, if you read, as you will, the last part of that same chapter, their brothers come up and they screw the thing up as well. They mess it up, but they're not killed. God does spectacular things at diff different epics in Bible history in order to reset us, get our attention. So again, fast forward, church, the church has begun. Acts chapter five, things are going, things are growing. 
People are being encouraged. Barnabas is exalted because of his great encouragement, how much he gives. And these two other people come along. They, we kind of want a little bit of that recognition. So they sell part of their property and they give it to, they give it to Peter under the assumption that they're giving it all. But the Bible says they kept back some. In fact, the, the phrase kept back is where we get our English word embezzle. And because they're lying, God drops Ananias and Sapphira dead in their tracks on the same day. Not for adultery, not for rape, not for murder, but for lying. Anybody ever, ever lied? Okay, you didn't drop dead though, huh? So you see, God does serious... By the way, it tells us in verse 11 of chapter 5, great fear came upon the church, and that fear spilled out to those who are outside of the church. You know God is at work when the fear of him not only permeates the ranks, but it spills over. So all of that is going on here, and then some. So Titus concludes, not with a spectacular judgment... Uh, but with a spectacular warning, just the same. And by the way, there is, a, there is a gentleman in our church, it was the same guy who was disciplined on that night when the woman said, I, you know, I thank you, I, I feel safe here. I get, a, I get a text from this guy uh, randomly. I mean, just randomly. He sends me texts. I never know when they're coming. And they're always just filled with gratitude. Oh, I thank the Lord for you, Pastor. God bless you and all that. I, it's nice to get those from time to time, Okay. And the reason he does it is because even though he was put out of the church by church discipline and into the realm of Satan, God got a hold of his life and brought conviction into him. And he came back weeping and confessing and repenting and coming before the church and asking for forgiveness. It took an hour and a half for the church to clear out, giving this guy hugs. And this guy is one of the most grateful people I know to this day for the power and the protection of the church of God. Church discipline is a form of divine protection for God's people. And when properly carried out, it's like, it's, like, it's like rooting out a growing cancer that's in our midst. So remember that illustration because we'll come back to it. Two crucial instructions on church discipline. I want you to, I want you to mark these down. First, in church discipline, we don't discipline the person for sin. We discipline them for refusing to repent of their sin. Huge distinction. God's people sin all the time. Can I get a witness? I sin all the time. This is not a matter of whether or not we sin. It's a matter of whether or not we're willing to turn from our sin. Okay? And then in church discipline, this is going to be one of those, huh? In church discipline, we address the matter of the degree of sin. If I had a dime for every time I hear God's people say, well, you know, all sin's the same to God, I'd be rich, and it may, it, it's revolt. It, oh, that is so untrue. That is not true. All sin is not the same to God. Get that out of your head. Does all, is all sin an affront to God, big and little? Yes. Does all sin separate? Yes, would the tiniest sin in the world be enough justification for God to send you to hell? Yes. But the truth of the matter is, all sin is not the same. God didn't destroy a whole city because they were inhospitable. 
And when Paul, I mean, look, who could argue that there was a degree factor in 1 Corinthians 5 that we read earlier, and Paul says, I mean, there's incest going on here. Are you kidding? Deal with the matter. Here's the point. When sin threatens the testimony of the church, of Jesus Christ, then that sin must be addressed. That sinner must be confronted. And if refusing to repent, he must be disciplined. And and by the way, a little extra here. The goal of church discipline is not the restoration of the sinner. You'll hear that a lot too. That isn't even true. Do we want the person to be restored? Go like this. Absolutely. We pray, we fast, we plead. Do we want them to come back to God? Of course we do. But the... But if that's your goal, you won't accomplish that goal every time. If the goal of church discipline is the glory of God and the purity of the church, that can be accomplished every time. The goal of church discipline is that God be glorified and the church be purified. That's the goal of church discipline, okay? You want God to be honored and church to be pure. That's why we use the analogy of cancer. It's a good illustration because on dealing with the degrees of sin, some cancers grow more slowly, and they, you know, you, the method of dealing with the cancer is going to be different than somebody who suddenly has a stage four plus cancer, and you got to radically deal with that thing to extract it, right? And so, church discipline has the, a degree factor, and you might be saying, "Where does that say in the Bible?" I'm glad you asked. Here's a couple of things you can note as well. Gradual and radical church discipline. Now, when we talk about these two things, we're talking about basically the two types of church discipline in the New Testament that end up removing the member from the church. Doesn't happen very often, but has to, by, of necessity, because it's in Scripture and we're commanded to do so, we have to be obedient here. Here's the first one, and this is the one you're, you're most familiar with. Uh, through the gradual process laid out by Jesus. Now, and you're probably familiar. If you want to go there, you can. We'll put the scripture up in, in Matthew 18. This is the classic passage of scripture on church discipline. This is that three-step process that Jesus himself laid out. This is, when, this is really dealing with personal sin more than anything. And we've sort of thrown this as a canopy over everything and maybe too much. But anyway, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Do you see that? This is the first part of the process. Look at it again. If your brother sins against you, go and get your friends and tell everybody you know what he did. Is that what it says? No, it says it's a one-on-one. You're looking, you love the guy enough. You love the girl enough that you're not going to tell anybody else. You're going to tell them. And this is where most of it ends right here. It's like, oh my goodness, thank you for pointing this out. Forgive me. And this happens all the time. Praise the Lord, right? But if they refuse, then you start to incrementally expand the circle. Notice what Jesus says. If he he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Game over. Verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Do you see what he's saying here? You're going to take a couple people, hopefully somebody who's part of the game, somebody who knows the individual, somebody who's in their life, somebody that's in your small group, your cell group, somebody that that's a part of the problem or the solution to the problem, and you get those individuals and, and you bring incremental pressure on. Suddenly, two, there's three of them showing up, 
and stereo. And by the way, a lot of stuff ends right here. Just in the last service, during the fellowship hall, I had a young man who I knew was a troubled young man at one time. I don't know where he's at right now, but he made a beeline to me. I didn't even know he was here this morning. We didn't discipline him out of this church or anything, but he came right up to me and said, thank you for that message. He said, I was that guy with one, two, three people coming to me speaking the same thing, and I was, re- I was pushing against them. This message needs to be heard. And it's wonderful when this, by design, incremental pressure comes on. Again, the individuals that go out there and just all over the place, he just gets a couple of people together bringing incremental uh, pressure. And some of you are probably learning this for the first time, but that's good. But then he says, if they refuse, look what he says. If, verse 7, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, this is where a lot of church discipline churches get, uh, get wacky. They get goofy. They say, well, this is where you kick them out. No, it isn't. That's not what it says at all. He says, tell it to the church. So you see what he's doing? It's that one person. Then it's suddenly you got three. And then now you brought the church in, into play. Because they're rebuffing, they're pushing the whole time. And then you don't hang out the dirty laundry because it's a shame to speak of those things which are done in secret, Paul says in Ephesians 5.12. So you, but you're doing, you're basically laying out the basic sin. And then you don't remove them, you give them an opportunity to, as a church to, a, to appeal to him. And this, by the way, the same individual we talked about, at the very beginning, he was in the first service, weeping his eyes out for gratitude. He, he was, do you know when he... When we got to this place in the process, 30 to 40 people in the church showed up at his door over the next five days. Imagine that. And yet he still pushed back. And Jesus says, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, and the word even is in there. It's the, word, it's the Greek word chi. It's just me. He's, it, it's, it means, I mean, can you imagine not listening to the whole church? Yeah, it happens, Unfortunately. And so Jesus, anticipating this, says, if, if they refuse to listen, even in the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That word Gentile be better translated heathen or non-covenant person, an un- unbeliever. That's the idea here. Strong words indeed. By the way, the process, if someone in sin continues to resist the entire Christ-loving three-step process Jesus himself laid out. They're to be put out and treated like an unbeliever. And basically, if that's you or you know somebody who's gone through that, what they are declaring, whether it's true or not, isn't, isn't the point. Whether, it's, whether, they're, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian isn't the point. If you get through this process, you're saying to everyone, I am not a Christian. That's what you're saying. You're declaring it. It's like, it's like somebody getting baptized saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. This is a person who's been disciplined saying, I am not a follower of Jesus. That's what they're saying. So the gradual and radical church discipline, that's the gradual. Jeez, what's the radical look like? You want to see? Nobody's leaving, so that's a good thing. Let's look at it. Number two. This is the second one that removes the person from membership through radical extraction laid out by the Apostle Paul. This is the less referred to. We've already looked at the text, but look at it again, okay? 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says it's actually reported there's sexual immorality among you, and the kind that not, I mean, the pagans don't even do this stuff, he says. A man's got his father's wife. There's incest going on here. 
and you're arrogant. You ought to mourn. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, please notice that there is no process here. A lot of people, including us, have sort of superimposed Matthew 18 over this, but I don't think Paul's superimposing it. He's saying this is so scandalous, so life-threatening to the body, you need to deal with it. This is a cancer that has to be extracted. And there, are, there could be situations like this that would cause us to move much more quickly in that whole business of dealing with somebody. That's a radical extraction. Now, there are lesser forms. Now, listen to this. This is a very important statement, what I'm going to say here. There are lesser forms of church discipline in the New Testament, but they are not less important. I'll say that again. There are lesser forms of church discipline we find in the New Testament, but they are not less important. Let me show you one. Here's one right here. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Note the specificity of this command. Note, it says note. That word means to mark, means to, you know, to, be, to make a note, look. Hmm? Have nothing to do with him. There's, there's, there's an isolation factor. And don't count him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, this is really interesting. There is, there's, there's mercy. Do you see the mercy here? There's mercy, but it's a severe mercy. And there's nothing in this text that says this person gets removed. Now, they might be. This individual might have to go through church discipline, but it's likely an individual that you're just dealing with internally. There's a severe mercy. This is the unrepentant brother or sister. You're rendering them to sort of feel the sense of being outside, alienated from the warmth and the fellowship, and yet they're still inside. Somebody, I mean, I've talked to somebody, what's this look like? It's, it's, it's got to be really odd and awkward for that person. That's why they sometimes they'll just flee. Here's one that's very much like it in Romans chapter 16. Here's what, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. And what? Say it. Avoid them. And we'll get back to that here in a moment. So really, really strong language here. And so finally here in Titus chapter 3, Paul is going to give you another one of these areas of church discipline that doesn't necessarily remove the individual. It could, but not necessarily. Uh, and he's going to give us some instruction here. This is, it's bracketed by verse 8 and verse 14. He, God wants his church to be about doing good things, profitable things, right? Because after, after all, James says, faith without works is what? It's dead being alone, right? So don't miss the contrast. Verse 8, profitable. Verse 9, unprofitable. And Paul's action plan about dealing with divisive people here is really straightforward. I mean, look at it again in, in, uh, in Titus chapter 3. He says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. They're unprofitable. They're worth and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division, that's, that's the person we're taking note of here. The word, that's the word for her, heresy. After warning him once, 
and then twice have nothing more to do with them. Knowing such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. Now here's the action plan for divisive Christians from Titus's perspective. First, real simple, avoid them. See it? Avoid them. That's the Greek word which means to go around. It carries the idea of giving them a wide berth. This isn't, you don't, this isn't talking about their personality or their hygiene. <laughs> this, is a, this is the divisive person. You're going to give them a wide berth. By, and, and the reason he tells you is because they're foolish. You see the word foolish there? Avoid foolish. They're foolish. They're, they're involved in foolish. That word foolish is where we get our English word. Are you ready for it? Moron. That's the word. It, it carries the idea of being somebody who's brainless. And the idea is, it's not, it has nothing to do with your intelligence, but because you're, you, you're involved in foolishness, you become, you shut your thinking off. People come to you, someone, two people, three people, five people, they're speaking to you in stereo, and they're all saying the same thing, and you're just saying no, but for some reason you got it figured out. That's the, that's the fool here. That's the fool. You're brainless. Now, I needed a little levity. It was really, at this point, and it was really nice of our own missionaries to Togo, who go there as doctor and wife uh, regularly, Chuck and Donna Larson. They're in Togo, and they're on their way back right now, and, but they stopped in Crete. They're in Crete. That's a picture from Crete. Just this morning, they're in Crete, in the very city where they have, in this Greek Orthodox church, uh, the skull of Titus. In there is the skull of Titus. <laughs> Chuck says to me, do you think Sailorville will want your skull when you're dead? I said, they'd learn a lot of stuff, that's for sure. Not, I mean, yeah, anyway. But here's the point. This individual who's fool, who's fool, who's brainless, he's, it also conveys contentiousness. It conveys that he's a contentious person. He's always pushing back. And, and by the way, if you want to know if you're dealing with one of these individuals, here's the, here's the thing. You've got to ask yourself, and you should ask yourself this too when you're confronted. Do you ever have aha moments? Because if you don't, you're in the realm of the fool. The aha moment is, oh my goodness, thank you for sharing that. I, I never saw that before. I've never seen that. Thank you for giving that perspective. That's why we need brothers and sisters in Christ speaking to our hearts, speaking to our minds, right? So that we say, wow, thanks for pointing that out. I knew of an individual who every time we'd have an, it was always an argument, it was always a controversy, and I can never remember one time him saying, oh my goodness, I see it now. That's the fool, the one who never, ever is open to the rebuff and the rebu rebuke of his brothers and sisters. I, just the other day, I got an email from a brother who's not from our area. He's in another church. He's got somebody in a small group, and this guy is constantly arguing his little, his little uh, hobby horse that he has. He's not right on it. This brother has corrected him repeatedly, but he just brings it up every single time. He said, what should I do? I said, listen to this message and take this to him. Because I'm preaching on that this, this week. I said, here's the text. I'm anxious to find out how it went. So the straightforward 
about dealing with divisive people is avoid them and then warn them. That's the next thing. See it, warn them. He uses the word warn means to put, means to be placed into the mind. You're speaking very directly to them. Warn them. And this isn't, notice he says it twice. He, uh, uh, warning them once and then twice. I, that's a really important statement there. This isn't two strikes and you're out. The two warnings tell us two things. One, that God and his church are patient and merciful. Would you agree? God is patient and he's merciful with us. But the other thing this tells us is God is not mocked. There's a limit to his patience. There's a limit to the mercy. And there has to be that with the church. You warn them once, you warn them again. And then after that, thirdly, you shun them. That's what it says. The word, the expression, in, in, uh, the ESV, unfortunately, has have nothing to do with them. That is the sense of just one word. Some of your Bibles say reject. That's what it means. It literally, the Greek means to beg off. Why? Why would you do that? Well, he tells you because he's, he's, because he's stirring up division. That's why. And he's warped. See that? Which means to be twisted. And in the end, verse 11, he's what condemned? Look at it. He's what condemned? If you're looking at your Bible, he's self-condemned. And that's the reason why I say to somebody who, is, who resists the entire process, comes to the brink of having their, their, them being brought before the church, I tell them, look, my friend, we're not condemning you. You're condemning yourself. So there's the simple line. But I have to say this to all of you, because I don't want this to be a, have such an edge about it or a guilt about it, not at all. George Whitfield and C.S. Lewis had this in common with one another. They both understood their own personal depravity. C.S. Lewis, thinking about depravity, said, I have my own heart as a reference. George Whitfield, remember who George Whitfield was, the great preacher? He preached to 40,000 people in the open air without any electronic help. He had such a powerful voice. He was the one who said everywhere he preached, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. A woman came up to him one day and said, why do you always preach you must be born again? And he said, because, ma'am, you must be born again. That's George Whitfield. George Whitfield and John Wesley, at one time, friends, were alienated by differences in theology. And somebody came to Whitfield one day and said, are you hearing what the followers of Wesley are saying about you? They're saying awful things about you. How, do you. how do you respond to them? And George Whitfield said, here's how I respond. I know worse things about myself than they'll ever know. I do too. When I think of things that have gone through my mind, that have entered into my heart, that I would even entertain or contemplate for any moment, I'm ashamed. I've had to repent of those things. I'm not saying I've acted on them. I'm saying they've entered in there. Can you relate to that? If you can, then you'll not be so holier than thou when it comes to somebody who's fallen away from God, though we do have to deal with them. It's a severe mercy. 
Church discipline should be and is, thankfully, a rare thing, but until Jesus comes, it's a necessary thing. One of my favorite stories of one of my best friends, his name is Charles Spurgeon. We were really good friends. He doesn't know me, but I knew him. He was six years old. Six years old. He was living with his grandfather at the time, who was a congregational pastor. Spurgeon came from a line of preachers. Six years old. His grandfather was bemoaning and grieving over a certain former member who had walked away from God, was spending all of his Sundays at the local pub, drinking beer, reading the newspaper. And his grandfather was grieved. And, and Spurgeon one day just said to his grandfather, I'm going to, his name was Thomas Rhodes, I'm going to kill old Rhodes. His grandfather said, we don't need you to do that now. No, I don't mean kill him bad. I'm just going to kill him. His grandfather didn't really know what Charles was saying. Charles Spurgeon walked on the next Sunday down to that pub, walked into the pub, six years old, and walked up to Thomas Rhodes and said, What dost thou hear, Elijah? <laughs> Quoting from the Old Testament. Look at you. Breaking your pastor's heart. I wouldn't break my pastor's heart. You should be ashamed of yourself. And he turned around and walked out of the pub. That afternoon, Thomas Rhodes showed up at the manse, knocked on the door. Spurgeon's grandfather answered the door. He was in tears, told him the tale, the tale of what had happened earlier, repented, turned back to God, and was a faithful member of that church until he died. Six-year-old Charles Spurgeon. Let me conclude with this. If you're a member of Sailorville Church, thank God for the protection, the safety of your membership. If you're a Christian and not a member, this isn't meant to be a guilt trip for you, but would you consider the church as a place of love and truth and safety? I got a text right after the first service. When's the next membership class? Worked. If you're a Christian living in unrepentant sin right now, God knows. And one day, so will his people. Why not turn from your sin, repent, and turn back to God and take that tiny look at God that you have and and fear him again. See him as big and wonderful and loving. And finally, if you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, know this. The most spectacular thing that God ever did at the most epic time this world has ever known was to send his own son to judge your sin in order to save your soul. That's the love of God in Jesus Christ. He loves you enough to save you. Don't let this sermon scare you. Let it be the inspiration of knowing that you're outside of the membership of God's family. Why don't you come in through faith in Jesus? And then consider the local church. It's a safe place to be. God, thank you for our time together in your word and in praise.
and in truth. Truth, Lord, that is strong stuff, strong medicine here. I pray that our, your people will be encouraged and find this place a place of refuge, safety, and protection. That those who have, are on the outside looking in as members but know you would see afresh the power, the leverage, the joy, the love of belonging, serving in a local church. For those not walking with you, God, may this be a time of great fear to see you greatly turn from their sin and back to you. For those that are in this midst, Lord, who don't know Jesus, they're outside of the family of God as well as the church of God. If that's you, dear friend, look at the most spectacular event in history where God judged your sin in order to save your soul through the sacrifice and resurrection of his son and believe him today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.